Pastor Michael was supposed to be here this morning. I wasn't prepared to do this, but uh, I've had a great morning reuniting with my friend, Rabbi John Adlin. Um, had a great morning reuniting with my friend, Rabbi Adlin. I had the privilege of studying with him last winter and last fall up at Temple uh, Israel, and we have extended our friendship and hopefully into the future to become fishing buddies. But I'm sure that as we continue in our theology year of seeking faith through understanding, that this next series um, on the creation will be a, a great, great contributor to the, this year. And we welcome him, and I thank him personally, both as a friend and as organizer of this class, for being here. To that extent, let's open in prayer. Father God, we come together again today as we continue to increase our understanding of you and your principles and ways as we try to expand our faith. We look back and remember that it all began with the words, in the beginning, God Open our hearts today through your Holy Spirit. Help us to know your will, increase our understanding, but more importantly, our faith in you. Amen. I guess that means it's my turn. <laughs> Good morning. We probably need to turn that down just a little bit because I have never been soft-spoken. So... Um, Dr. Moretta actually gave me an, an, the opening to the opening here because he said the Bible starts with the words, in the beginning. But it doesn't. It was a bad translation that we have suffered with for 2,000 years, which we will get to. I mean, he, he's, he's right. Every, every text, every Bible translated it in the beginning, up until more recent times. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So what we're going to do uh, this week is we are going to take a look at a few small parts of Genesis 1 from the perspective of the rabbis who lived about a thousand years ago. Uh, and we're, I'm going to give you text to be able to look at, which are going to make your eyes sort of spin around when you see them, because you're going to say, do people really study from these things? Uh, I'm also going to give you the original, because I have copies of it, both in Hebrew and English, and then that'll really get you going. And um, we're going to sort of unpack a little bit of this from the perspective of the rabbis, how they understood what happened then. Next week, uh, Rabbi Spitzer will be here uh, uh, to present a different perspective on, on Genesis. And then he thought he was going to be here the third week. He's not going to be here the third week. You get me again, for better or for worse. We'll see whether you want me back or whether you get a Sunday off. So, what I want to start with is for you to tell me, this, in very general terms, the story of creation, without looking in the text. <laughs> What's the story of creation? Come on, you guys know it. Just <laughs> What? God created the heaven and the earth. What else? What else do you know from that story? What? He did create the dry land. Keep going. Created the animals. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. Where does it say he was lonely? Oh, you're, per you're the perfect foil for all of this. Thank you. <laughs> There, where does it, but where does it say that man was lonely? I mean, that God was lonely. Where does it say that God was lonely? It does. Where? It's in Genesis. Where in that story? No, 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 no. You guys know this. You've been, you've been, you've been reading this story since you were little children. I guarantee it. So the first chapter talks about creation in what terms? It talks about the first day, 
the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. Now remember, chapters were introduced after the story was written. So then it goes into uh, the seventh day, which we'll talk about. Then there's a second story of creation, which is not the first story of creation. And that's where that happens. So they're not, and they're not the same. We're not even going to look at that story because that just makes you crazy. We're going to look at the first one that gives us the, or, the more orderly thing. So what else happens in there? So I sort of, we get, I was figuring you're going to say that God created the world in six days. How come you didn't say that? Was that too obvious? <laughs> did God create the world in six days? Or did God create the world in seven days? Okay, well, and we're going to look at that. It was rest, but did God do any sense of creation on the seventh day? So just hold on to that. What else does it say when a God, what does it say about the creation of human beings in that first story? That's in the second story. (laughs) And this is what people do. They mix and match the two stories together. I've been hearing this for years. God created the world in six days. God created Adam, and then God created Eve from Adam. But they're mixing the two stories together. It doesn't say that in the first story of creation. It said God created male and female at the same time. So we're going to take a look at that as well. But I'm going to give you two handouts here. One, and we're going to actually read that first story of creation. You want to do that? All right. But before we get into that first story, so when the Jewish people, and that is a gross generalization, study text, they never just open the Bible. First of all, let's even back that. What is the Jewish Bible? More than the Pentateuch, more than the Torah, the Jewish Bible is? What? More than that. You're you're, you're only talking about a part of it. What's the whole Jewish Bible? The The books of the prophets? It's the whole what you call the Old Testament. That's the Jewish Bible, not just the Torah. The Torah is the first part of it. The second part of it would be the prophets. And for the Jewish community, um, counts the bo- orders the books a little bit differently. So we, after Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, we go Josh's Judges, the Samuels, the Kings, the three major prophets, and the 12 minor prophets. And when that ends, then we go to the third, what we call the third section, which is called the writings. And that has Psalms and Proverbs and Lamentations and Ruth and, and Job and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, Daniel, Chronicles, and I'm sure I missed something in there, <laughs> but that's pretty close. But those are the, that's the last section. So when I asked you what the Jewish Bible was, you said the Torah and you said the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch and the Torah are the same thing. That's what most of the Jewish community focuses on. We don't really look at the other parts, not that we reject them, to study, but the significant and the most important parts of our study is always focused on the Torah, Genesis, Deuteronomy, okay? When I teach, uh, when I have groups come to temple, kids in particular, and I'll say, well, what are the five books of Moses? And they look at me like I'm talking a different language, which I could, but I didn't in that particular case. Um, And they look at me, and I say, well, what are they? And somebody will give one and maybe another, and I say, here's the mnemonic device. GE lights never dim. If you can remember that for the rest of your life, you'll remember the five five names. I learned that from a Christian youth group in Lexington, Kentucky, when I was the rabbi there. They're the ones who taught me that, and I've never forgotten that, obviously. So when we open up the text, we don't just read the text. We always read the text with commentators, with the commentary that's provided with the insight of the rabbis, because the text itself, you could read it, but we don't, we're not, we're not, we don't want to get stuck in the way that they understood it. We want to understand it from the perspective of different rabbis. And there were some great rabbis who have offer and continue to offer, even up until this day, interpretations on the text. 
They don't even agree with each other. There's one of these commentators that always starts by citing one of the earlier ones and said, this is what he says, but he's wrong. <laughs> but they're both great commentators because it helps us understand from, a, from their view in the 11th and 12th and 13th and 14th centuries, which is the ones we're going to look at, how they understood the text. What I've also learned from my clergy study group that we have that meets is that I read the text differently than some of my Christian minister friends. We have this group, and we get, we get together to study, and every, there's a different study leader. It was initially set up so people would, would who was ever leading would bring the lectionary, or uh, for the Jewish community would be the portion of the week. We read the Torah in order. So we divide it up into 54 parts, and we start with the first one, and then the second one. Sometimes there's two parts that are combined into one. Um, uh, this week, we're, this week because we're already on to next Shabbat, would be um, about chapters 18 to 22 of Genesis. So that's where we are, more or less. They'll read, the, by Christian, they'll read the story. And then, I, and then Rabbi Spitzer and I, we drive them a little crazy because I don't want to just read the story. I said, well, wait a minute, what came before that? What comes after that? Why, this, why is this word order there? What does this mean? And we dive into the text as I understand how to read the text, not how, always how they understand to read the text, because the words matter. And you have to read for that. So, the text that we're, we're going to be looking at is the one that I quoted at the top of that particular passage called Mikraot Gedolot, which is the commentator's Bible, the rabbi's Bible. This is what it looks like in, and I'm going to pass it around, in English. And there is some Hebrew on the page. It's a very busy page, and you're going to get copies of this, but I wanted you to, to be able to hold the book. All right, that's what it looks like with an English translation, which has only been coming out over the last, oh, five, ten years. This is that same text in Hebrew. I can't even read the small part with my progressive lenses. <laughs> so this is what it looks like there. So it's a very busy page. This is the Torah portion. This is the Aramaic translation. Why do they have Aramaic? Because even by the time that they're putting this together, not all Jews could understand the Hebrew, but they could understand the Aramaic. By the time Jesus comes along, Aramaic is the major language that's being spoken. Hebrew is becoming the sacred text. And then, these two pages go together. And then there's this guy over here who's the, the earliest commentator, and then you'll see other ones on the page. Until you get to the very bottom down here, where the Hebrew is. And I have to remember, is this one with vowels? And none of the Hebrew in the commentary actually has vowels. So which makes it really, that's like the Torah is written without vowels. And if you get to the real bottom of the page, it makes it very difficult. And, and it's written in a special script that's called Rashi script, so they wouldn't confuse the commentators from the, the Torah portion script. All right, so we're going to, I want to do one more job giving these out here. Yeah. This is what you're going to get, which was from the very first page of the, the text. And I've been really nice, and I've underlined the places that we're going to be looking at. All right? So there are um, five commentators... on this page, and I'll set up the page for you in a second. The first one is a guy named Rashi, and he's the most important one. He lived in the 11th century, I'm pretty sure, yep, in the 11th century, and he lived in southern France, and he was the first one to ever undertake a, t a commentary on the entire, not just Torah, but the whole... Old, uh, whole Jewish scripture, the whole Hebrew Bible. And he not only did that, he also put a commentary on the Talmud, which is a different text for use for different things. So the man was very busy. Um, 
And he left us this. He's the most important of them. So by now, okay, so you have this. So you can see up in the upper right-hand corner, you see the name Rashi. All right, everybody see that on their page there? It's right under the NJPS, which stands for the New Jewish Publication Society. That's the translation that most uh, Jews use today. On the other side, you'll see the guy's name is Rashbaum. Most of these guys have acronyms um, because... That's how we were able to identify them, because so many of them all had the same first name, Moses or Shlomo for Solomon, so they gave them uh, acronyms. Rashbaum lived in in the end of the 11th and beginning of the 12th century, and his commentaries over there. Below him is a guy named Ibn Ezra, which you look at his name, it's Rabbi Avraham ben Meir Ibn Ezra, which means he's Rabbi Abraham, the son of Meir, Ibn is, is the Arabic for Ben, or son of, Meir. So that's who he is. Uh, and he lived more or less the same time as Rashbam. Then you get the one that's called Kimhi, whose real name, whose name is also Radak, but is Rabbi David Kimhi. And he, notice that he lived in France also. So that's three out of the five of these guys lived in France. And then the big one, the guy who doesn't know how to shut up, is this one down here. His name is Nachmanides, Rabbi Nachman, uh, Moses ben Nachman. He tends to go on and on, and he's the one that doesn't like a lot of Rashi's commentaries there. So these guys all took a look at this text, and they be, um, before we do that, let's back up just a second. I want to read, if you'll turn to behind the commentators, but so you have the commentators there that'll help you sort of stay focused when we move from them. If so- This word right here. 
saying the same words. The problem that the rap, what, what's the problem? What's the problem in the text? I already sort of pointed it out. What's the difference between in the beginning and when God began to create? True. If something did, was it actually the beginning, beginning, or was there something there before it? What else do you see in that? Those first sort of sentences. What other maybe textual issues or things that are in there? Okay, you're on the right track. You're really close. When God began to create the heaven and the earth, the earth was unformed and void, which means the earth was already there when God. Be, when if you said in the beginning God created. It doesn't say that because the earth was there. So they, the translation of this word, this letter, is the key to everything. Instead of saying, in the beginning, God created, in the, when God began to create, which means that there was already a process going on. It doesn't mean that it happened, that it was, there was nothing there. There had to be something there. Already, And this boggles the minds of the commentators. Already, a thousand years ago, 600, 700 years ago, they were struggling with uh, that particular question. How did the earth, which was unformed and void, how did it exist if God was, if this was the beginning? So I wanted to sh show you something. Normally, in this commentary, this page would just take take care of that, then they would do the next page and there would be some text and stuff. This beginning, and I don't know, I didn't even bring all of it. No, maybe I did. One, two, three. At least three to four pages just on the word when, words when God began. They were so confounded by ha that had to happen, they twist themselves into pretzels trying to be able to make sense of what that meant and how that could possibly be. So the, the thing is that when they are trying to figure out what's God's role in what's going on, did God snap God's proverbial fingers and everything came into being? Or did the, the people who were writing this text believe that God was there, but there had to have been something there. But God came into focus as the universe, or the world in this case, was being created. There's really no, no answer, right answer to that. But it is the struggle that they're trying to figure out. And it's a theological struggle. Because people in this, um, in this world, when they use this text, there are those who like to say, God created the heaven and the earth and, and, and the world in six days. That's what you got. You got six days is six days, 24 hours, whatever it is, but it's six days and it all got get laid out. Or was there a process that was already unfolding in, the, in this universe as the world was being created? Or are, what is the purpose of the story from the minds of the People who were writing the text, now, I've already jumped, and, you know, I may offend some people, but the Jewish community, outside of the very Orthodox community, doesn't believe that God actually used God's finger to write the text. Nobody gave him a number two pencil, or a fountain pen, or uh, a Sharpie, which would then would have lasted through eternity, to write, uh, to write the text, or... Uh, is, is it this the way that the people who are trying to figure out the nature of the world that they're living in, are they looking around and, and trying to say, well, there is this presence, this greater presence that exists. And this greater presence must have brought into existence what we, have, we get to experience. Did God, did, they, did God create it right from nothing? Ex nihilo? Or did God sort of work with what was there. There's no particular right answer to that from the rabbi's perspective, but it is the question that they're addressing. We know from reading 
the, the, the six days of creation, that they get it pretty close to sort of how things, how scientists go back now and look at the evolution of the world. They're not perfect, uh, but they're pretty close. They, they, they saw a natural order and a natural hierarchy of things, putting, uh, at least they, put, they believe that man is the top of the hierarchy. We won't argue or, or dispute that at this point, but that's how they, they see the final evo evolution of it all. Or did it all just happen because God said, this is the way it's going to be? So looking at the very top, where it says Rashi there. Well, let's actually, in the center, the very center, you see where it says, if your glasses are good enough, it says, a Barbanel's questions. This is why I think that all rabbis had to wear glasses, because the text just kept getting smaller and smaller, and there was no way. If I took my glasses off, uh-uh. <laughs> so you see the part that I bracketed at the bottom of that little part. This Abarbanel was a guy who came a little bit after all these other commentators. And what he did is he started to ask, what are the fundamental questions that we should be asking in each little part? And you go from section to section in here, and you'll have Abarbanel's questions in there. And it's for the reader, it gives you a chance to sort of look ahead and say, well, what are these rabbis going to be addressing? So his question is, why is the creation of spiritual beings, the angels, not mentioned? They are one-third of the world and the highest third of it at that. So that's the question that he wants everything to get laid out eventually as we move along. So Rashi asks the question up in the upper left-hand corner. He quotes another rabbi. Rabbi Isaac said, and I have no idea who Rabbi Isaac is. It could, there are probably a hundred of them. There was no need to begin the Torah until... The verse from Exodus, this month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. So why does he say that? Why did he, so he's asking, well, why did we begin the Torah with, with the creation of the world? Why didn't we just start with where it says in Exodus 12, this month shall mark for you the beginning of the months? Isn't that the beginning of it all? So what's happening in Exodus 12? Exodus 12 is during the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. They have, uh, they're, on their, they're on their way. And Exodus 12, if you've ever read the text, is an interruption in the story. It, sits, it takes a moment and it says, okay, so this is how you're going to celebrate this Passover that the Jewish community celebrates. And it says, this is really the beginning of it all. This is the beginning and this is how you're going to celebrate it. You're going to do X and Y and Z to a certain extent. And then chapter 13, they move back into the story of the Exodus again. I just, just, just sometime, just go read chapter 11 and then 12, and then 13, and you will see this sort of this interruption in the text. So Rabbi Isaacs want to know, if it said this is the month that's going to be marked all the beginning of the months, why are we starting with in the beginning? God created, when God began to create the heaven and the earth, why don't we start there? So the answer, or, or Rashi goes on, the first commandment given to Israel. So what was the point of starting with the beginning? So O.J., PS stands for the Old Jewish Publication Society. So I'll just give a quick information. In 1917, the Jewish community got together and published a translation uh, of the, the Hebrew scriptures. In the 1980s, starting in the 1970s and finishing in the 1980s, they came out with a new, more updated translation. And today, if you go, there's no new translation of the Jewish Publication Society, which was our made, one of our major publishing houses, but there are many other translations that have continued to come out. Ones that are trying to reflect, translations are a reflection of where the society is at any particular time. If you read the King James Bible, which some of you may have or may still do, it is a really terrible translation of the Hebrew text, but it was a very good translation for the times that that was being written in. So what was the point of starting with this? He revealed to his people his powerful works in giving them the heritage of the nations. So why does it start then? Because God wanted to show how great God was. And this is what happens when God began to create the world. And then we see the unfolding of that. If you go to the right-hand side, to Rashbam, you can see where I underlined the text. It said, in the beginning, God created. So he's using the old translation. But this is impossible. 
As verse 2 tells us, there was wind from God sweeping over the water, meaning the water too already existed, which is what you said. The water already existed before the creation happened. So how do, how do you explain that? And then I just want to just touch, even though I didn't underline it, it just this gets into where they get into the nitty gritty. Moreover, the first Hebrew word of the text does not mean in the beginning, but at the beginning of. Uh, and then you can see where they find, you can see that they use other textual references. So these guys, first of all, they knew the Bible without a text. They knew the whole thing by heart. Because how many books did they have to read? There weren't a lot of books then. There were, there were various Jewish texts, but they knew it. And they knew every, uh, all the Hebrew. Obviously, that's what they were studying from. So they know that without even working too hard, that... Um, uh, that you get in later in Genesis chapter 10, 10, you get the same word, Bereshit, with the the at the beginning. And you get Hosea, you get the beginning also. So he's seeing other places where it means a little bit different. So why do we trans- Why is it translated that here and differently elsewhere? He's saying we should translate it all con- uh, the same wherever it is. So just drop down just a little to Ibn Ezra. Grammatically, this is, of course, correct. But the mind cannot actually conceive of a beginning in the abstract. This is the problem that all of us have had. How do you create something out of nothing? It's also my good, a good argument when people come and talk to me. Well, prove that God exists. Well, I say, well, I can't really prove God exists, but we can talk about creation. So what existed before something existed? And you can't, um, yeah, your, your mind just goes around like you can't imagine looking out and there's absolute nothing. It, it really is the best argument for 15 and 16-year-olds because who are thinking they're so smart at that point. Well, we know that there was a big bang. Well, where did that big bang come from? Where did that first subatomic electron come from? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, you know, but somehow something came from nothing. And I said, well, I can't tell you that God, you know, was there and created that. But somehow, somewhere, there had to be something that created that first subatomic particle that then exploded into what we have today. All right, one more on this page. Nachmanides. Rashi's comment signing Rabbi Isaac is questionable. <laughs> they didn't live at the same time. They, didn't, they certainly obviously didn't know each other, though... Um, Nachmanides always has to give deference to Rashi because he was the first and the greatest, even if he disagrees with him. Rashi's comment citing Rabbi Isaac is questionable. It was, in fact, quite necessary to start the Torah with creation, which is the root of faith. So that's what he's saying. It's not because we need the world to be created. It's the sense of that when you look at the story of creation, it gives you that deep sense of awe and faith. You don't have to believe the story literally, but if you just believe it metaphorically, if you believe it on a faith basis, it gives you that faith that, that there was some sense of order in the beginning of all of this creation. So that's how, and I, you, I, we could go on and on, but we don't have enough time to go on and on with all this, and I was more excited to go through this text and you can see that I underlined and underlined and underlined (laughs) but so I wanted to go on to the second part so we have the unfolding of creation we have the first day we have the uh, God then creates the second day and the third day and the fourth day and the fifth day until we get to the sixth day six days the most text of all of the days in there because several things happen in there and eventually we get to the creation of human beings not Adam and not Eve, but human beings. And this is always one of my, um, my pet conversations. Because, let me just make sure I get to the right. See, I didn't number the pages, but you'll have to get to the page that has let us make man up here. Just turn a few pages. I, I did not do you the disservice of making them back-to-back, which would have just made it even worse. Um, This is one of the the things that's most important to me. So 
as some of you well, you were in the paper yesterday in the religion section, they mentioned that this was going to be happening today, and I saw those beautiful words, the retired rabbis of Temple Israel. That was beautiful. I couldn't have said it any better myself. So last June, I retired from uh, serving in the pulpit of Temple Israel. Uh, we don't have another rabbi yet, but we're, uh, things are, uh, are, we finally got some applications and things are looking in the right direction. Uh, but, uh, so for the high holy days of 2018, those are, you know, our most significant holidays in the fall. You have Rosh Hashanah, which is the, the beginning of the, the new year. And just I'll really drive you now really crazy because the beginning of the new year falls in the seventh month. Only Jews would do that. <laughs> so on the first day of the seventh month, why the seventh month? There can be, there's, this is where you get into commentary. Because what day, what day is Shabbat? Shabbat's the seventh month. So God must have rested in God's creation of the world in the seventh month. So that's why we celebrate Rosh Hashanah there. And I could give you a lot of other explanations, but nobody knows why, but that's what it says. The first month is actually in the spring, in the same month that Passover falls for us. That's the first of the months. And that's when we start counting them in order of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, A, and 12, B in some years, and just 12 in other years. Um, we, that's how they work that out. So, but for the 2018, I decided to be not political, not controversial in my very last high holiday sermons. I wanted to leave them still liking me. Um, I decided to uh, write sermons on my favorite verses from Jewish life, from the Torah. Uh, from some other rabbinic texts that we have, and I just sort of wove them together. And I have, so, Hillen, I have to give four major sermons in ten days. Sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> so you give uh, two on Rosh Hashanah and two on on Yom Kippur. You spend about a month preparing all of those things. You get them all written out. They're all, they're all done. And so I wove together the verses verses in, in setting them up in different ways. But one of my favorite verses that I picked was from this particular portion here where it says in Hebrew, B'Tselem Elohim. In the, God created, uh, in the image of God, human beings were created. B'Tselem Elohim. Oh, let me just go back one second because I get this com- uh, comment a lot. The word in... For God, in the beginning of the story, it says, Bereshit bara Elohim. When God began to create. Now, first of all, Hebrew doesn't work noun, verb, object. Okay, because so, this is Bereshit. When, when created, Bereshit bara. No, when began, bara created God, is if you read it that way. Hebrew, biblical Hebrew in particular flips things around, and, and it's, or we flipped it back around to make it more palatable today. But the word for God there is Elohim. And Elohim in Hebrew is a plural. Now we know that there's, a, from our monotheistic face, that there's only one God. So how do they, they know that that Elohim was only one? Uh, was a singular and not a plural, even though the im at the end indicates a plural, because the verb that's connected to it is singular. Elohim, Bereshit, bara is a singular, third person, singular, masculine verb, Elohim. So that's how we know. Whenever Elohim is used in the Torah or anywhere, in the, it's always with a singular verb. So the ancients understood it. They may have had Elohim. We don't know why they came up with Elohim, it could, probably from the word Eloha, which was a, a more singular. Maybe it reflects all of the different natures of God, all the different strengths of God, all the different characteristics of God. We can, we can create it, whatever rabbinic commentary we want, but it exists as Elohim. The other one that is not in this story, but in the second chapter, then they go to the other name for God in the Torah, which in Hebrew is the yud Hey. So that's God's name in, as written the other time when God's name is written in the Torah. Those four letters. It's called the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter uh, four unpronounceable name of God. Today, 
uh, when the Jewish community sees that particular text, uh, see that word, they'll say Adonai. You probably have heard that. It may even be in some of the hymns or psalms or the songs that you sing. To pronounce it, sometimes people will say Yahweh. Sometimes people will say Yehovah. There certainly is no J. There's no J for Jacob or J for Joseph. There's a Y, but the Y got translated into J, uh, which is why the word Jesus as a Hebrew word wouldn't exist in Hebrew because there's no J sound. Um, but we don't know how it's pronounced. And I, I don't mean to be uh, irreverent, which I can be very easily. Uh, it could be pronounced Yuhu, literally, if you put the right vowels in there. This is only consonants. Both of those words, I didn't put the vowels up for them. It's only consonants. So uh, we don't know how it's pronounced. Why don't we know how it's pronounced? Because the only time it was ever pronounced once the temple was created was on Yom Kippur in the afternoon. The high priest would go into the inner sanctum of the, of the temple, would prostrate to the ground, and would pronounce the name. And they were so worried that the high priest might get it wrong that they tied a rope around the high priest because if he got it wrong, they had to be, and he died immediately, they had to be able to pull him out because nobody could go in after him. We don't know, we presume, we, we have no record of the high priest ever dying in the inner sanctum, so we, we, we believe he got it right. But once the temple was destroyed in the year 70, there was no way to pronounce that name. There was no place to pronounce the name, and the pronunciation of those four letters got lost because there were no vowels. Hebrew is an unvocalized text. I didn't make Dr. Moretta learn Hebrew without the vowels. We read with the vowels today. In this Hebrew text on here, if you look at it, you'll see dots and dashes surrounding the words. Those are the Hebrew vowels. They were added in in the 7th, 8th, 9th century by a group of, of Jews called, who called themselves the Masoretes, the traditionalists, who wanted to be able to preserve Hebrew. They knew they had to create it, a, vocal, a vocalization system. So they, knew how the, they believed they knew how the words were pronounced. They created the vowels to go with it. And that's what we have today. But back in the, in the ancient days, there were no vowels. So we don't know how that name is pronounced. But it is in the second chapter. We do see it. We do pronounce it as Adonai when we see it today. Um, the rabbis like to see, well, one is more about mercy and one is more about justice. They like to see the Elohim when they, in Midrashic, or commentator-wise, when you see the word Elohim, there's a sense of mercy. When you see the word Adonai, it's more of a sense of justice. That's how they sort of played with those two. It doesn't always work perfect, and eventually they get connected together, Adonai Elohim. So without getting too far off track, I'll do this in one minute. There were, we believe that there were different traditions writing the text, and there was the... Uh, what we call the J school, that was the Adonai school, that had its stories in the, the Torah. And then there was the E school, or the Elohist school, that had its stories. And eventually these stories get merged together. And so scholars who like to tear the text apart and try and figure it all out, eventually they see it merged together. We know the stories are merged together. My favorite teacher, one of my favorite teachers in rabbinical school, said, you can do all the tearing apart if you want. You can assign to the A, the J, and the E, and the P, and the D school, all these different schools. In the end, just read the text and try and see what it's trying to talk to you about. Don't get hung up on all of these different schools. So, um, they, when they get to let us make man, who's the us? That's not a rhetorical question. Who's the us? But well, we do know the spirit hovered over the face of the water. They never define what that spirit is. Is that spirit God? Well, from our perspective, it certainly wouldn't be the Holy Spirit. <laughs> maybe maybe you, you can read that back into the text. And that you have every right to be able to do that. I always say in, in when you read the text, don't tell other people that they're wrong. Because the Christian community reads the text with, with one way, the Jewish community may read it another way, the Islamic community another way, other people, you know, everybody has their interpretations. They're, everybody has the right to interpretations as long as it doesn't end up killing the other person, which unfortunately history proves me wrong on that one. But my, this, is, this is sort of my argument about the prophets in that um, there's some very particular passages in Isaiah 
that the Christian community uses as foundational text. Very important text. The Jewish community never read the text that way. Um, we see the text, we, you know, well, that's a whole different story at a whole different time, but we see the text differently. We understand them a little differently. I could go back into these commentators and they could help me understand the text. But just because I don't read them like you do or you don't read them like I do doesn't make me right and you wrong or you right and me wrong. I probably said that the same way twice. <clears throat> but so that's what's really important. So the spirit over the water, we don't know. Was it God? Was it some sort of heavenly host? We, the rabbis, very much believe that God was surrounded by these, uh, what they call the tzivaot, the hosts. That God had this, God, though God did the, the, big, the big work, there was a lot of, help. God had a lot of helpers. And these helpers were there. So, getting off track even more, this is where uh, the word satan makes it really interesting which eventually sort of got translated into Satan and has this real negative thing. In the book of Job, Satan, or Satan, is not this terrible person. It's one of God's heavenly hosts who believes that God should be challenged about um, uh, uh, whether God should be challenged. It's God's adversary, but it, it's still, Satan is still one of the heavenly hosts. Christianity sort of took it in a whole different and direction and Dante certainly took it in a whole other direction there but for the Jewish community we don't look at Satan he's the word Satan is even in one of our prayers and in, in Hebrew uh, it's in the liberal movement it's I think it's gotten removed and replaced with something else only because of the way we translate the prayer but in Hebrew in the traditional one Satan that word is there because it wasn't this really bad idea it was just the political adversary God needed to be challenged, just like a king needed to be challenged. That's what the prophets were. That's what Nathan was to David. Nathan was the, the prophet that made David have to rethink everything about uh, what uh, David was, was thinking. And every king had a prophetic advisor. We don't always have the names, but they all had prophetic advisors who were there to challenge them um, today. So the let us make man, who was the us? Um, if you look on the right-hand side of that page in the Rashbam, he says, let us make man in our image, in the image of the angels. Not in the image of God, because we don't know what God looks like. But they, already back then, had an idea of what maybe angels look like, and that human beings may reflect angels. After our likeness, I love this one. Let us with regard to wisdom. And then there's a little note there. Note that when man misbehaves, man is like the beasts rather than the angels. So the, the image of God and the likeness of God is not that we can actually draw a picture of God, but it's, like, it's, the, it's the idea of what we want human beings to be. All right, so we're going to go just a little farther in the text told you I prepared too much stuff. <laughs> so then the next part, let me get the right page there, is the one that's most important to me. And that's where it says male and female. I'm not even going to look at the, the page there because we don't have enough time for me to get into the details. Male and female, God created them. This is one of the most important passages, and this is why people mix and match the stories. Because they forget that in the first story, males and females were created at the same moment and equal, both with the same uh, strengths and maybe even the same weaknesses, but they were created at the same time. What's happened is what you, when you brought it up, and I thank you for being my foil today, um, is that people then jump to the second story and they say that woman was created from Adam's rib. Puts it in, one interpreter puts it in a, her in a subservient role. And for people who want to see that subservience, that's they skip from A and they go to B. But here in the text, it says in the Hebrew,
by Eve. I'm going to, you don't have to uh, follow me, but I'm going to read it and, cre- and translate it. Vayivra Elohim, and God created et ha'adam, this is man with a capital M, bitsamo in, in God's image. And it says in his image. I'm trying to be, it's, liberal Judaism has tried to be as, as gender um, neutral as we possibly can, but this text is really hard to translate because that. Hebrew is a, a gender-sensitive language. So everything is either masculine or feminine, which is why everything got tra- translated the way it did, and you end up with his all the time. But uh, when, you, when you try and take that out of it, you can see that it's just that's the way that the, it always defers to the masculine unless it's only female in there, in the language. It's sort of like French, I guess. I don't remember my French. I didn't remember when I was studying it. <laughs> God created man in God's image, but Selim Elohim bara otu. In the image of God, he created him. And then it says, Zachar unkeva bara otam. Male and female, he created them. So when at first it says him, who's the him? The male and the female. And then he says he created them. Then he separates them into two. So first he creates them as one, and then God separates them into two. That's how the authors of the first text of Genesis understood this moment of creation of human beings. Genesis 2 screws it all up. And women have suffered for that for millennia because of how we understood chapter 2. Now, some of you may think that's just fine. I could not say that in my household. <laughs> I know better. <laughs> All right. Last thing, we have about five minutes. The Sabbath day, and this is what to come with you, is that, and this is, there's no answer to this question, but the commentators in here in this text, and you can go sort of look at the places I underlined, God, did God rest on the Sabbath day, or did God create the Sabbath day and then rest? We always think that God rested on the We know that God rested on the Sabbath day. The Jewish community takes it, the observant Jewish community takes it very seriously and rests completely. They do no manner of work that could be accounted towards creation on that day. Um, I'm a little more liberal in that. I would much be happier to do woodworking or fishing or working in my garden, but I take it as a special day for me. I take it away from the things that I can't do the rest of the week. Of course, now in retirement, I can do it every day. Which, so every day for me is now Shabbat or the Sabbath. I like that. Um, so, uh, and they don't really, they're not really able to answer this question, but they know that there's a textual problem there because if God created the Sabbath on the Sabbath, then God did work on the Sabbath. But they're okay with that because God then blessed it and made it holy. And maybe if that's the kind of work that's going to happen on the Sabbath, we can all live with that. So let's take five minutes of any questions or comments or throwing me out of the room or whatever you want to do. Yeah. This is the, it's a good question because the rabbis, if, you know, if we'd gotten into some of the other parts, they talk about that as well. And this is one of the interesting things. Even in the most observant part of the Jewish world, the Orthodox Jewish world, they do not see day as 24 hours. They don't try to give any time to what that meant. We didn't, they didn't, they, there was no way that we understood what God said day, what day meant. So they already understood that even though, yes, there is this day, first day, second day, third day, and so on. They didn't believe that it was just 24, 24 hours. And I'm okay with, I'm good with that. I can deal with billions of years if, if necessary. It's more of the order. So the difference between the first story and the second story in general is the first story is very orderly. You know, it's really easy to read. You know, this happened, this happened, this happened. You know, there may be some flaws. The second chapter is absolutely chaotic. It doesn't unfold smoothly. It leaves you uncomfortable. And really the only part of all of that that you and most people remember are two parts. One, Adam names the animals, and Eve gets made from Adam's rib. That's the only parts that people remember from that story. Yeah. 
Uh, certainly, the, the answer to the second part is yes. Um, we don't, you know, the Torah as a text, we think was in a finished form 2,500 years ago. But it was, a, but we don't know. These first 11 chapters of Genesis seem to come from um, the, the world of, and I'm going to say this very loosely, of the mythology, that's, the mythologies that existed already. We know from the ancient Near Eastern texts that they, many people, and not just ancient Near Eastern texts, texts throughout the world, that all people seem to have some sort of creation story. Uh, the Native Americans have creation stories. The people from India have creation stories. The people from China have creation stories. Our creation story is the one that, for some reason, emerged out of this, but we don't know when it We have no idea when it was, was written down. And we have no idea why they chose to, to put two different stories in the text. I can tell, all I can tell you is that consistency in the Torah is not important. Because we see, we can point out, I can point out, if we had time really to go through the text, other areas which seem to be inconsistent, and just go to the story of Noah. So how many days did it rain? And 150. Both of them are in there. You have to, the problem is we get stuck with the story that we're taught in religious school instead of reading the text. Both of those are in, in there. What is, in the, the animals that Noah, the, the bird, is it a dove or is it a raven? Both of them are in the story. And my, my favorite one is um, just because the bird brought back a stick. At least when I'm out fishing, I know that you're supposed to stay away from sticks because they float. That was really not any great feat on the part of that bird to say that the, <laughs> the flood. It's when it gets to dry land, yeah, but not because it brings back an olive branch. So we don't know really the answer to your question. But um, the commentators have, have struggled with the two stories from the beginning of commentary. Commentary in Jewish world has been going on for at least 2,000 years. I'm bringing the ones from 1,000 years ago. Rabbi Spitzer may take you back earlier than that. If he goes back into the Midrash, which is his assignment, but I know him too, he'll go, he'll go to some earlier text as well. Yes? Well, from the Jewish perspective, Satan never gets kicked out of heaven. I mean, the only time Satan or Satan is ever mentioned is in the story of Job. Unless I'm wrong. I don't know. I'd have to go look at my concordance for that. But that's the only time Satan ever comes up, and then that's it. The story of Job in in Jewish literary work is a later story. Um, Really one of the more complicated stories, but certainly one of the more profound as well. So never gets kicked out of heaven from our perspective. Yeah. All right, we have one more minute or two, if you're really nice, or if I'm nice. Yeah? Yes, sir. They, they, they use the same commentaries that I do. <laughs> Sorry. When did female rabbis come about? Well, just like in everything else, there are two answers to this question. So the first female rabbi that was ordained was ordained in 1972. Her name was Sally Prezan. That's what we thought until about 10 years ago when some archives from Germany were uncovered. And it turned out that back in the 1920s, a woman named Regina Jonas was ordained as a a rabbi. Unfortunately, she perished in, in the Holocaust. There was a rabbi who knew her story and knew all about her, but didn't ever talk about it. And it wasn't until we, people were doing some work into some old archives that they found that. But that's as long as we've had. For most part, everybody likes to count them from the 1970s, but we do know this one person was before that. She, I, I know, I've known her for a long, long time. Um, she was the speaker at my ordination in 1982. She served my brother's wife's congregation, and we served Planned Parenthood together uh, for, for many years. So we've known each other. She's probably 15 years older than I am, maybe 10 years older than I am. Yeah. No. Uh, conservative rabbis started ordaining, and the first conservative female rabbi was ordained in 1984. And I know that because I was in Indianapolis as a sister rabbi, but I was head of the uh, Indianapolis Board of Rabbis, and she came to Indianapolis, and I wrote her a welcome. 
uh, and congratulations on her ordination. Uh, there's another movement called Reconstructionism, which is much smaller. They ordained their first rabbi in the 1970s. She also was living in Indianapolis, which was sort of pretty, pretty interesting. Now today, at least half of every rabbinical school class in the reform movement is female. Not well. <laughs> they don't recognize female rabbis as rabbis, not because they can't be rabbis, but their duties that they're supposed to perform that, according to the Orthodox, they can't really perform. And that's, it would be a much longer answer to your question, but it gets a little more complicated. But there have been a few females who have been ordained within the more liberal part of the modern Orthodox movement, but it's really pushing the thing. It's pushing the envelope just the way that the, uh, the Pope, when he, somebody said about married priests down in South America, it's pushing it. And it's the right, my perspective, the right push could solve some other problems that they, they may have. Not that I'm interested in solving their problems one way or another. I've got enough of my own. Uh, all right. Thank you. I